It's so good to see faces and not stare at a camera six inches from my face. This is a much better option. And uh, just, I I would think that this room was filled with 300 people with your singing this morning. It was just a blessing to be up front and to to hear your voices. Um, You know, we're doing two services, so I want to thank those of you who have come to the first service as my rehearsal for the second service. It's really, really kind of you. if you notice on your way in, there were some signs that were handwritten. Uh, just so you know, the Sunday before, or the Sunday of Easter when I showed up, I sent you a picture if you watched any of the midweek devotionals, but every pew in this sanctuary was filled with signs, and so some of those are the signs that were taken out of the sanctuary so that you can kind of see what people had done, so it's pretty special. Um, the other thing I want to do before we get started is to kind of give you an update Um, Our search team for the executive pastor position met for the first time this week, and I just want you to know how encouraged I am with the people who are on that team, Um, just their input and insight into the process, and they had some great uh, ideas about the qualities of the person that we're looking for as we begin this search together. So I wanted to tell you that, but also remind you uh, in that to be prayerful for us. Um, We want to follow the Lord's lead wherever he uh, takes us, and we want to be faithful to look and to see where that is. The phrase I've said before, I've told the committee that I want you to keep in mind as you pray is that the Lord would consistently confirm or clearly redirect as we walk through this process seeking to follow him. So if you would be prayerful with us during this time, we would uh, really be grateful for that. So if you would, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Second Thessalonians. And we will look at our passage. As we do, I want to remind you the context of uh, what we're going to look at this morning in our passage. If you'll remember, Paul just finished giving clarification of uh, what was going on, and he was telling the Thessalonian church about the promise of the Lord's return. You'll remember, this has been the the main focus uh, of Paul's first and second letter. Uh, So everything that he's been talking about is kind of centered around the, the return of Christ. Remember, in his first letter, he talked about Jesus appearing to gather the church. And you will remember, this is something that was seen and heard only by those for which it was intended. And then he reminded those who remain alive, who were waiting for that day, that they would not endure the day of God's wrath. And he gave them that great promise towards the end of 1 Thessalonians when he said, whether dead or alive, we remain together with Christ. So for a Christian, there's never, never a moment upon that time that you place your faith in him that you are separated from him. Ever, anything, whatever the situation may be, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ that we, or love of God that we find in Christ Jesus. So that's the promise. And then in the second letter, he kind of revisits the same topic, but this time he's speaking specifically to address some false teaching that has infiltrated the church. These false teachers were saying that the day of the Lord had already come, which would have been unsettling for the Christians during that time because they were, in fact, enduring severe persecution, so it would be easy to accept this. It just wasn't true. Paul goes on to explain how how the gathering that the church would come without warning, but the day of the Lord would be preceded with observable signs that the Scripture spoke on many different times. 
And so he walks through those details so that they would not be deceived. Paul ultimately, as we've said all along, is writing to give them peace and comfort in this process. He wants them to know that they are destined for salvation in Christ, not through enduring wrath in the day of judgment. But in our passage this morning, Paul's going to now turn his attention to, to God and say, okay, if that's true, then how do we live in light of Jesus coming? After all, if Jesus is coming to rescue us from wrath, should we just kind of all sit around and wait for him to get here? Is that what it should look like? Or maybe we should just grit our teeth and try to endure this miserable world as best we can. Is that what we need to do? Or maybe we should take the philosophy that many have in our world today. We should get the most out of life while we can, right? Just go out and live life to the fullest, gaining all the benefits that this world has to offer while we're here. Is that what we should do? That's the question that we want to ask ourselves this morning is, how do we live in light of the Lord's return? We know it's going to happen. We've been clear on the promises that Paul has made but what difference should it make in our life from day to day? Well, Paul's going to answer that question this morning, and he's going to do so by turning our attention to God. Because how we live, ultimately, the answer to the question, how we live from day to day, is ultimately based on what God has done. It's a response. Trusting in God's work, standing on God's word, being strengthened by God's grace. How we live is based on all that God has done. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it is so, so good to be together with family, to see faces, to see smiles, and just to see life in you um, as a part of being part of your, your family. So as we open up your word this morning, we pray that you open up our hearts and our minds and our eyes to see your truth, to be changed and impacted by what we hear, and to be, be living differently because of it. And so, Lord, would you speak through your word by the power of your spirit? Would you shape and mold us to become more like Christ because of what we experienced together this morning? We trust that that's possible. We believe that's a promise. And so we pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you're not already there, we'll begin looking together in verse 13. So chapter 2, verse 13. Paul writes and says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification, by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to take this piece by piece because it's filled with goodness. But I want to remind you that Paul just finished talking about the destiny of those who reject God's truth. And so he begins verse 13 with a contrast. But uh, it's a contrast to what he just said. So instead of a life that leads to destruction, he's saying that, that Christians should live a life that is filled with praise. Paul says, we should always give thanks to God for you. Because their faithfulness to God is the result of God's faithfulness to them. That's why we give praise. Their faithfulness to God is a response to God's faithfulness to them. 
And it would be wrong not to recognize God's hand at work very clearly in their lives. After all, Paul says, they are beloved by God. In other words, when you are God's child, you need to know that he delights in you. That's part of what it means to be beloved by God. He, he wants you to flourish under his loving care. He wants you to be satisfied with all the goodness that he has made possible for you. That's what it means to be beloved by God. He delights in you. And God's love for you existed before the world was created. Now wrap your mind around that a little bit. God's love for you existed before the world was ever created. He sees the end from the beginning. And in the beginning, he saw you. And when he saw you, he chose to love you. That was his initial reaction to the thought of you. It was a thought that was filled with absolute love. Even in our sin and rebellion, God demonstrated his love towards you. Because the scripture tells us, right? Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. One pastor describes it this way. He says, the kingdom of God is for the spiritually sick who want to be healed. The spiritually corrupt who want to be cleansed. The spiritually poor who want to be rich. The spiritually hungry who want to be fed. The spiritually dead who want to be made alive. It is for ungodly outcasts who want to become God's beloved children, ones in whom he delights. Our salvation is ultimately an invitation from a loving heavenly father. We only move towards God because God first moved towards us. We are responding to his loving initiative. But we need to understand, we don't just respond once and then just call it good like we're done. <laughs> Salvation experience and what it means to abide in Christ is a moment-by-moment -moment daily decision to trust in him. I believe Paul speaks of that when he writes to the Philippians. And listen to what he says in chapter 2, verse 12. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Salvation is a series of invitations as we learn to increasingly put our trust in the Lord. That's what it means to live by faith. Salvation is not just a, a one-time decision and, and call it good. It's a, a lifetime of transformation where we become more and more like Christ. In fact, that's what sanctification is all about. Paul speaks about it in his letter to the Romans in chapter 8, verse 29, when he says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That was God's original intent for you to be conformed into the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. 
You see, that phrase, the, the firstborn of many brethren, is intended to communicate to us that, that the example that Jesus gave is the example that we should fo- follow. It's like an, an older brother to a younger brother, an older sister to a younger sister. You, you look up to them, you admire them, you want to emulate them. And that's what he's saying here. But this is not something that we do for God as we muster up the strength to do everything we're supposed to do. This is something that God does in us. That's what Paul says to the letter in, to the Philippians, right? He says, it's God who is at work in you. And what is he doing? Both to the will or the desire and for the good works that you will perform, that he prepared beforehand. That's God's work in you. Not something you do for him, it's something he does in you. Our passage says that our life is changed by the work of the Spirit. And we respond by faith in the truth. The, the Spirit works and we respond. That is a life of faith. It's also why the Bible tells us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're a parent, you understand what this means. Because if you love your kids, you want what's best for them, right? You want to guide and direct them on the best possible outcome for their lives. But sometimes they want to do things different. They want to go on their own. And it absolutely grieves your heart as a parent when you see them making choices that you know are going to end up being painful when you are offering them a blessing. Well, the Spirit of God at work in your heart is offering you a blessing. He is trying to lead you into God's best for your life. But we have to learn to trust him. We have to learn to trust him more than we trust ourselves. We have to learn to rely on his truth more than we trust in our own opinions. That's what the walk of faith is, and it's not always easy. I've heard it described recently that we all have a a, a committee of voices in our head. And we just have to decide which voice we're going to listen to. I just want to encourage you that what this is telling us is that we want the voice of God to speak loudest in our head. We want his truth to resound more clearly than anything else that we hear in our hearts. After all, it was his voice, the voice of God that spoke to you through the gospel that was presented to you. I love the way Ephesians describes that. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, it said, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, responding in faith, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. These are amazing truths that I want you to really let sink deep into your heart. God chose you out of love. He saved you through his son. He sealed you by his spirit so that you are secure eternally in him. That's incredible. And it should be something that sinks deeply inside our soul. So that, as Paul says in our passage, you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know that Jesus was glorified because his sacrifice on the cross was sufficient for the forgiveness of all of our sins, past, present, and future. Jesus came and accomplished everything God sent him to do. And in a similar way, when you stand before God, 
you will receive the same loving approval from your heavenly Father as Jesus did in accomplishing your salvation. The same loving approval. The same acceptance that Christ received, you receive as well. We will become everything God created us to be. Our sanctification will be complete. This passage is not going to come up, so I'll just tell you it right now. But Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work in you will fulfill it, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Why does it say until the day of Christ Jesus? Because on the day of Christ Jesus, it's complete. It's done. It's finished. You become everything he created you to be and experience all the glory of life eternal with him. Look at how Paul continues in verse 15, as if that's not good enough already. Verse 15, so then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. I think those first two words in this verse are the most important two words uh, to be read. So then, so then, based on all that God has done, based on all that he has accomplished, based on all the promises that we just walked through together, his loving approval, his choosing love, his faithful forgiveness, based on all that God has done, then this is what we must do. And the first thing is stand firm. Stand firm. When I hear that phrase, I have an image that comes in my mind. And my, that image that comes into my mind is somebody who's kind of holding their ground. They've got a low center of gravity. They're kind of bracing for impact. They're, they're standing firm, right? So when I thought of that, I thought about my son, Graham, who's a large man now. But I thought, okay, what if Graham were to say, hey, Dad, let me see if I can knock you over. Well, two things are going to happen. Number one, I'm going to be ready. I'm going to stand firm, right? I'm going to be ready. The other thing is I'm not going to let him get a running start, right? (laughs) Those two things are certainly going to happen. But that's the image that I have in mind when I think about what it means to stand firm. So what Paul is saying here is that we need to be firm in our faith. Listen to how he explains it to the Corinthians when he says, be on alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. In this context, he's using a metaphor from the military. In this context, he's describing the attitude of someone who is either in the midst of or about to go into a battle. You see, a soldier's worst nightmare is surprise. They want to be prepared. They want to go into a situation knowing that it's filled with danger and it's likely difficult. And and so they want to be strong and courageous before they ever walk into the situation. They want to be prepared to stand firm. And, And I believe this should be the description of every one of us who have chosen to follow Christ. Because here's the reality. Our life is a spiritual battle. Every day you wake up, You walk into the battlefield because you have an enemy. And the enemy is very crafty. Listen to how Paul describes it to the Ephesians. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to, here it is, stand firm against the schemes of the devil. See, our enemy has a plan. The question is, are you prepared? But remember, standing firm is a response 
to being saved. We are not relying on our own strength. We are looking to and trusting in God's power. We are standing firm because we are strengthened in God's truth. That's Paul's point in this passage. He says, hold to the traditions. That's what you're grabbing hold of. That's what you're standing firm with. Hold to the the traditions you have been taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Don't just accept something because it sounds good or makes sense to you or seems logical. Because here's the reality, and this is true for all of us, okay? So I'm not pointing the finger at anyone. I'm saying this is true for every person in this room, including me. We are naturally inclined to accept the things that we want to hear. It's true for all of us. And that's actually how false teaching gets a foothold in the church. So last week I read this verse to you again, but in light of that, I want you to listen to it. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desire. We like when people tell us the things that we want to hear. But we will not stand firm unless we trust in what God's word has to say. I want you to know that I don't think I've memorized more scripture in the last few months than I've memorized in my entire lifetime put together. Because those words of truth have become a lifeline for a sound mind. I'm like a boat that can be untied from the dock and left to itself is just going to go with the current and left too long, it'll either end up lost or be stranded on the rock somewhere. I've learned that I need to be tied to God's truth. I need to set down an anchor deep inside God's word. And those words need to resonate in my mind day after day after day. We can stand firm on what God says he will do because of the assurance of all that God has done. That's the promise. Look at how he continues in verse 16. It says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope of grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. God's work of salvation gives us confidence because of what he's done in the past to stand firm in those promises of truth that we have in the present. And we are strengthened by the promise of God's grace day by day. And I want you to notice the extent of this provision. The God who has loved us from eternity past is promising us an eternal hope. That's what he says in our passage. His grace extends all the way from one end of history to the other. So what that tells us is that there is never a time in your life when you are outside the boundaries of God's grace. It has existed from eternity past and will continue into eternity future. We see this grace in what Paul has described as eternal comfort and good hope. I think both of those things seem to look forward to a promise of of something yet future, but yet still present today. These are sure and certain outcomes of the Christian life, which means we don't have to live as victims of what is happening in the world around us. Our destiny is determined by God. 
Paul is helping us see that belief always precedes behavior. And if we believe that God is in control and that his plan is filled with goodness, then we are not easily moved by what is happening around us. That's why the psalmist can write in Psalm 62, He alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold, and in him I will not be greatly shaken. See, what I think about when I hear that promise is that I might lose my footing, I might be shaken, but God will never lose his grip of grace upon me. I may lose my footing, but God's grace never loses its grip. I am eternally secure in him. And Paul is helping us see that when we cling to this hope-filled promise, it can affect how we live our lives from day to day. We don't have to be in control. In fact, things don't always have to go right. I heard it described recently as a contagious calm. Isn't that a good phrase? Someone who has that kind of assurance has what is called a contagious calm, a blessed assurance of God's sovereign care. And Paul is describing this daily dependence on God's comfort and strength. And he does this all throughout Scripture. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not that we do for him, but that he prepared beforehand so that we can walk in them. So I think that's the good works that Paul is referring to in our passage this morning. If you look at Ephesians 4.29, it talks about the good words that God puts on our heart. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only which is good for edification, only that which is good for giving grace according to the need of that moment, extending the same grace to others as God has extended to you. I recently shared with our region group that I wouldn't invite any of the experiences that I have uh, had in the last uh, several months. But at this point, I can stand here and tell you, I wouldn't trade them for anything. I wouldn't invite them. But at this point, I wouldn't trade them for anything. Because through the suffering, I'm learning more and more what it means to live in a daily dependence upon God. For me, I'm I'm trying to spend less time in the future worrying about the what-ifs and more time in the present seeing where God's hand is at work right now. Living moment by moment, day by day, and trusting in Him for whatever the future might hold. I think that this is the picture that Paul has in mind in our passage. You see, God gives us the grace we need each day. It reminds me of the manna in the wilderness, right? God gave them exactly what they needed. Could they store up enough for the next day in case it didn't happen again? No. It would mold. It would get nasty. It wouldn't carry over. You could only have what you needed for that day. I think that's a perfect picture of the grace that God extends to us. He gives us exactly what we need for each day with maybe one small difference. I do think he gives us more than what we need, but not for us to carry over, but for us to give away. God gives us an abundant grace to not only satisfy what we need each and every day, but enough that we can actually share that grace with those around us. So if there's anything that you've heard this morning that I would want you to walk away with, I want you to hear this, okay? 
really simple statement. God's got this. God's got this. You can rest in his sovereign control and his saving work. In fact, you can endure difficulty because he promises to give you a a daily strength and and a daily comfort. You can even grieve with hope because of the promise of something better. This is a promise to those who are beloved by God. And it can be hard. I get that. It's easy to get lost and confused, especially when life feels like it's spinning out of control, when everything around us feels abnormal, right? Which is kind of where we find ourselves today. But instead of being overwhelmed by our circumstances, we need to set our eyes on God. It reminds me of a technique that ballerinas use called spotting. I don't know if you all have that up there. But I want you to watch this uh, person as they spin, which I don't think you're going to be able to see very well based on that. But anyway, they have this technique called spotting. And while their body spins, what you'll notice is that their head always turns around to the same spot each time. So they're fixing their eyes on one spot in each revolution, which allows them to keep their balance. Because if they try to spin around and see everything as their body turns, they'll get dizzy and lose their balance. It's called spotting. Well, I think that we are called to do something very similar. Because when it feels like our life is spinning out of control, we need to orient our vision to one single place, fixing our eyes on God. What do we know about who he is? What do we believe about what he says? If that becomes our focus, then we won't easily lose our balance in this world, even when it feels like it's spinning out of control. How we live should always be a response to all that God has done. Trusting in God's work, standing on God's word, strengthened by God's grace. Now, as you think about that, one of the things that has been communicated to me by several people over the last several weeks kind of one of the good things, if you will, that's come out of the quarantine is that they've said, we've had more conversations as a family or as a group after a sermon than we ever have in our lifetime. I mean, just to hear and then to sit down together and to talk about those things that we uh, discussed in the sermon, the questions that I've given you, right? So I want to urge you to continue that pattern even as we begin to meet together. I think that's a wonderful practice that we should all continue in the days and weeks and months and years ahead. So in order to help you with that, I'm going to give you some questions that I would love for you to consider based on our passage this morning. The first question is this. What is an attribute of God that comforts you most? And this should be fun because there are a lot of attributes that are incredibly wonderful. The fact that God is infinite, that he's all-knowing, that he's all-powerful, that he's ever-present, and the list goes on. But which one of those? If you were to just nail it down for one today in this moment, which one of the attributes of God comforts you most? So speak that out loud to someone and be thankful for what that truth is all about. Second question is this. What is your practice for daily depending upon God? What does that look like for you? Is it a five-minute check-in in in the morning where you do your daily quiet time and then you're off on your day? Is that daily dependence? Or is there something that needs to happen more moment by moment? 
recognizing God's presence, seeing his hand at work, talking with the Father, communicating with others about what the Lord's doing in your heart. What does daily dependence look like? That's a great conversation. Spend some time unpacking that and talking about what that means. Then lastly, is there a future worry you need to release into God's sovereign care? Maybe like me, are you living in the future? Is there something that's got your attention that you can't seem to let hold of? And what's happening is because you're so attentive on this future event, you'd lose out on this moment of opportunity. The people in front of you, the conversation you're having, the blessings that are in your face right now. So is there a future worry that you need to relinquish into God's hand and be present in the moment with where God is at work right now. And I would encourage you, I'm sure that most all of us, if not all of us, have some of those future worries. Well, when you're talking together, just take some time and pray for each other. Just ask the Lord to help you live in the moment of where his hand is at work right now and relinquish those worries into his sovereign care. Amen? Let me pray for us and then we'll close in song. Lord, thank you for the rich blessing of your word. And there are passages like this morning that we can mine for weeks and we would still find more good things, good promises, good truths that you intend to strengthen us. And the reason why is because we're your beloved. You delight in us. We have found complete approval in your eyes because of the sufficient sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. And you are at work in us right now. And it doesn't stop. And it will continue until the day you return. And then it will be complete. And so, Lord, I just pray that these words stir our hearts to live each and every day in light of your coming, in light of what we know to be true. That we would not be easily shaken. That we would know that your grace always has a firm grip, even when we lose our footing. And we can trust in you. And so we pray this in your name. Amen. Why don't you have a seat for just a minute? Here in a little bit, the ushers will come and they'll dismiss you row by row, kind of like if you were at a wedding. It'll make you feel really special. Uh, but I want to leave you with a gift that I received this week that uh, I want to share with you. Many of you know uh, my good friend Joel Tardy passed away this past week. And you may have heard this story, but it is a sweet, sweet story that really ties into what we just talked about. Um, just a few uh, days ago, I want to say it was probably a week or less than a week, he was in the hospital having been admitted because of an ongoing issue with increasing pain and discomfort. Every time they would treat one area of cancer, another area would come up, and it just was not going well. He called his son, and he said, Son, I would rather spend five minutes with the people I love than five months separated from them enduring what I'm enduring right now. So they decided at that point to go on to hospice bring their dad home, and so they brought him home, but within that 24 hours of leaving the hospital and getting back to the house, uh, he kind of fell into essentially a sedated coma um, because of the pain that he's having, the medication they were giving him, he just didn't have the strength, and one of the sons, Daniel, described it as just really defeating and disappointing because they were doing all this for five minutes, that's all they needed was just five minutes with their dad before he went to be with the Lord, and that didn't seem like it was going to happen, and they fully anticipated that it wouldn't happen. It, his death was imminent. And so I think about six or seven days went by after he had gotten home from the hospital, and nothing changed. 
And uh, Daniel was out on the balcony one day, and one of the brothers came out. They have 12 kids, by the way. So one of the 12 came out and said, hey, Dad is uh, coming outside. And in a moment of clarity, uh, he had woken up. They put him in a wheelchair, took him out to the balcony. And one by one, he spoke to each child and grandchild, called them by name, told them he loved them. And they had the sweetest probably 30 minutes of memories and time and just incredible. What a gift, right, to, to have that experience and that time together. So here's the gift I want to give to you. What are you going to do with your five minutes? What are you going to do with your day-to-day that would allow you to invest in what's important in and around you? Uh, this last week, Graham, my oldest son, we had gone uh, just locally to camp out together, the, the two boys and I, and we had a great time. And after it was over, Graham, my oldest, said, Dad, next weekend, can just you and I go out together and just, uh, I got some things that I want to talk to you about. And I remember at the time thinking, oh, my goodness, we've got two services coming up. Uh, I've got the search process going on, I'm getting applications every day, and I just can't, I just could not. And, and again, I'm living in the future, right? And then I remember Joel. I said, this may be my five minutes. I need to go be with my son. So we went and had a great 24 hours together. But what does that look like for you? What are your five minutes? Who are you going to spend time with right now? Because that's what you've been given. Let God take care of the future and you rest in the present and worries at work right now. Amen?